You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away, weeping bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Our mission at Sojourn is to reach people with the gospel, build them up as the church, and send them out into the world. And I'm thankful that you guys have come to be a part of that with us. Uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air. Um, who loved losing that hour of sleep? What's up, Custises? Come on, they're back, baby. We're slowly coming back. Uh, I'm so pumped about losing an hour of sleep. Um, I was pumped about coffee being back. Hey, I had coffee in here in a minute, Terry. I'm just going to start calling people by name because you guys are here and I'm excited. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're reopening Sojourn Kids, uh, which I'm really excited about. Next week? Next week. Woo! We need to have like a big thermometer countdown clock going on. Um, I'll tell you what, the idea of hearing little kids running around in this building again um, gets me a little, a little emotional. Uh, anybody want to guess how many adults it takes to pull off uh, sojourn kids in a safe, encouraging, life-giving way. Anybody want to guess what the number is? A hundred? No. We're also, Bobby, we're also learning who watches the Facebook announcement videos, so we're going to have to adjust our, our communication accordingly. S- 68. 68. That's how many humans it takes to serve the number of kids. Options are to have 68 adults uh, serve, or we could stop having babies. You guys, it's up, it's up to the church. Uh, I'm pro-baby, though. And so we're probably going to keep having babies. Uh, so we've got opportunities uh, to step in. That 68 is people serving every other week. Uh, if you want to serve every week, you're totally welcome to. Uh, we don't believe in lifetime appointments in the Sojourn Kids Ministry, so you'll serve at a quarterly basis. If you have any questions about what those opportunities might look like, uh, you can email Stephen Pierce at spierce at sojournchurch.com or Chrissy Smith csmith at sojournchurch.com. Or there's Stephen right back there. You can go harass him after the service. But um, really excited for them, uh, for kids to be reopening and to watch our church again uh, step up to the challenge and carry the load. So yeah, this is not a great segue. This is not intended, this question I'm about to ask you is not intended to apply to Sojourn kids, though we might chuckle about it now. Uh, 
yeah, here we go. I want you guys to take a moment and think about your last significant failure, which hopefully won't be us not opening Sojourn Kids. <laughs> uh, do you remember what you did? I'm talking that like pity your stomach, oh no, I've failed. Uh, what are people going to do if they find out? That kind of failure. Do you remember what you did? And do you remember how you responded? Can you remember how you felt when you thought someone might find out? Or maybe even now, you have maybe some fear rising because no one's found out and you're afraid of what will happen when they do. Perhaps it was a failure with a spouse. Perhaps it was a failure with a child. Perhaps a professional failure at work. I think most of us maybe are somewhere on the nauseous spectrum right now. If I sit with those failures too long, it rises in my stomach. I can feel it in my body. And have, have you ever stepped back to wonder why is failure so hard for us? I think one, one reason is our culture, and I'm, I'm talking about in the West here, in America more specifically, our culture tends to equate productivity with identity. So if you, you could think of identity as the thing you always are. Uh, your identity are these kind of, these truths or these realities that you carry with you in situation to situation. It's, it's what's most true about you. And for us, most of us, What's most true about us, who we are, is inseparable from what we accomplish or how productive we are. And that's, you don't raise your hand now, but that's the reason most of us don't take a day off. Or our day off is filled with yard work and house projects and errands and catching up for the week. Because what, what will happen if I sit still and just try to enjoy myself? How will I know who I am if I don't do anything? If we're not productive, who are we? So there's part of the pain around failure is that failure feels like an assault on our identity. It's, it's an attack on, on who we are. We've screwed up now, who am I? But I think there's something deeper that shapes identity. It's related, but it's deeper. I, I, I think other cultures don't struggle with productivity as, as much as we do, but I, I think there are deeper realities beyond productivity that transcend cultures and transcend time. And I think that's, it's the power of a promise. It's the power of a commitment. Failure is often, this is a little bit reductionistic, but failure is often just a broken promise. So we see failure in Peter here. Yes. But is the failure simply that he didn't share the gospel? Is, is the failure that he lied or had a moral failure? Is his failure just denying Jesus. I would say, yes, it's obviously a failure to deny Jesus, but it's more than that here. Uh, Peter's broken a promise to Jesus. He's broken several, actually. And I think these five verses, six verses, are a, a lesson for us in the power of a promise and the bitterness of failure. So think about the promises Peter has made to Jesus for a moment. The first and most simple promise that he made was that he would follow Jesus. Jesus said, come and follow me. Peter said, yes, I will. And think about what happens when you say yes to something. It's not always explicit, but anytime you say yes to something, you say no to everything else. If someone says, do you want to go to Cracker Barrel for, for lunch? And you say yes, you're also saying no to going to lunch at Bob Evans. 
When you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to many others and you're limiting your options. Whether you realize it or not at the time, saying yes to something means you're saying no to something else. You are self-limiting. You are narrowing your options. When Peter says he will follow Jesus, when he promises to follow Jesus, he's promising not to follow anybody else. He has made a commitment by making a promise. And that promise shapes his identity. Who am I? I'm a follower of Jesus. Not of this man, not of that woman, not of that philosophy. Who am I? I am a follower of Jesus. So promise making has the power to shape identity. The power of a promise is the power of identity. Your promises determine who you are. Your promises shape who you are. And this is quite different than feelings or emotions. Um, now, I think, I think we make several mistakes in the church around emotions and feelings. Uh, you can raise your hand for this. Anybody ever heard some phrase like, don't trust your emotions? Or the heart is deceitful above all things? That's a Bible verse now. Uh, people will say, essentially in the church, one of the most common mistakes we make is to demonize emotions. And so we say emotions, feelings are only bad all the time. The ideal of a Christian person is no emotion ever, just shut it all down. That's a mistake. Your emotions are a gift from God. Your emotions are an intricate part of your humanity. The most emotional person in the Bible is God himself. The problem comes in our view of emotions. We need to view emotions and feelings as informants and not as tour guides. In other words, we need to learn how to pay attention to our emotions. They're telling us something about what's going on inside of us. So we need to listen to them. We need to pay attention to them and integrate them, but we don't necessarily need to follow them. Emotions are a fickle thing, amen? The sun gets warm and all of a sudden I'm not depressed anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, is that an emotion thing? Is that a reality thing? Is that, we need to listen to what our feelings are telling us because there's something to learn from them but we need to be very careful when we follow them. Emotions cannot shape identity. Feelings cannot shape identity because they are too fickle. They're too unpredictable. And if our promises are based on feelings, we are doomed to break them. If you make an emotional promise, you, I almost guarantee that you will break them. Ask anybody in this church who's performed a wedding, um, and I would... I would almost guarantee high probability that the people who officiate wedding ceremonies in this church uh, do not let young couples write their own vows. Have you ever been to, don't raise your hand now because they might be in the room, but you ever been to a church where a couple wrote their own wedding vows? It's always terrible. 89% of the time it's terrible. If you wrote your own wedding vows, I'm sorry, I'm, not, I'm only making fun of you a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. Because what... You know, you're 25 or 30 and you're on fire with the passion of youth and love. And what, does, what do you say when you write a wedding vow? I vow to love you with the fire of a thousand suns and fall more in love with you every day. And I, all these huge, and all the married people in the room are just like, oh my gosh, see you next month, man. Have you noticed how unemotional the historic, classic, traditional Christian wedding vows are? I vow to love you if you're healthy or you're sick. I vow to love you if you're rich or you're poor. I vow to be faithful to you. Not if I feel like it, but I vow to be faithful to you. Those are promises and they shape your identity. 
Those are promises that drive a commitment that transcends circumstance or emotion. And by vowing to love that person in your wedding vows, you're vowing not to love other people in the same way. These kinds of promises, they transcend our emotional world and they create our identity. Responsibility and commitment, the kind that go beyond how we feel in the moment. This is who I always am. That's what a promise does. In Peter's case, he promised to always be a follower of Jesus. And that gave Peter a new identity. Who am I? I am one who follows Jesus. And that gives way to the power to create true community. Promises create shape, however you want to say that, identity. And then they also do the same to community because you've narrowed your options. You've self-limited. You've taken on responsibility. And that binds you to the people around you who are doing the same. This is the biblical concept of fellowship, rowing in the same boat together. Commitment to a shared mission, a shared life together. There, listen now, there is no community without promise making. If there is no community in your life, there's a chance that you have not made any promises. There is no community without promise making and promise keeping. You cannot be friends with someone unless there is a promise, un unless there is trust. Now, I agree with everything I just said, and I grant you that it's a little philosophical. Um, we're in a real pickle when it comes to these kinds of promises in the modern world, in our world. First, we don't like commitments. Our age does not like the idea of limitations. My specific demographic, I'm 38 years old, so people within five or 10 years of my age, from the day that I was born, my demographic has been told that we could be anything. I learned that wasn't true the first time I played basketball. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not like these people who can dribble with both hands. Are you kidding me? Uh, no matter how... How hard I try, I will never be what you might call fast, you know. But yet we got this message that you can be anything you want to be. Now we've totally divorced the idea of identity from this notion of promise keeping, of commitment, of responsibility. Identity has become a matter of emotion and feeling. I don't feel like being married to you anymore. I don't feel like this is who I am. We have this phrase now about finding ourselves. What do we do to find ourselves? We get rid of all responsibility. We get rid of all commitment. We move out to a small cabin in the woods and then we go and find ourselves. Too often I've, I've seen people quit a job, leave a spouse, abandon children, shirk all responsibilities in the name of finding myself. There's an internal problem around this kind of promise keeping that we have. But the other complication is most of us have experienced what other people are like. Imagine at least some of us in the room and watching at home have a, a sense that I might be able to keep a promise, but you people can't keep promises. I would keep promises. I would be fine with this if you people could do it. You see what I'm, you know what I mean? We, we have this feeling of, we know what's happened when we've tried this with other people. We've experienced people not keeping their promises with us and all the hurt that comes from it. 
So we have a culture telling us not to make promises, just do what you feel. And we have a history that tells us a personal history that it hurts too much to risk making promises. But Peter, bold and brave Peter, had made a promise to Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked in the sermon, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter promised, I'll never deny you. I'll even die for you, Jesus. And now here, three times, he denies Jesus, just as Jesus promised he would. Peter has broken both promises to follow Jesus and that he would never deny Jesus. And look what it did to him. Verse 75, suddenly, Jesus's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. This story and this scene in particular, perhaps more than any of the other in the others in the Gospels, remind us that what's recorded in the history of the disciples is most often unflattering. They don't look like typical heroes. Certainly not as Peter goes away by himself to weep bitterly. Why did he go away? Because who likes advertising their failures? Think back to that failure that you connected with at the very beginning of the sermon. Did you post about it on Instagram? Did you post about it on social media? Did you call a friend and be like, you're not going to believe how I blew it today? No, when, when we have profound failures, nearly all the time we will withdraw and isolate. Peter goes away to be alone. Promises create community and broken promises crush community. We've experienced this pain from promises that we have not kept. And we have experienced that pain from not promises not kept to us. So many of us, like Peter, pull away, we isolate, we go and be alone. That is what broken promises do. And while he is away and alone, it said he weeps bitterly. That, that word, modifying weeping, it, it means he's crying with agony. He's crying harshly. In your mind, try to picture, what, what does a middle-aged fisherman crying harshly look like? What does it sound like? Uh, another way we could translate it would be desperately. What do desperate tears look and sound like? I, I envision in my mind, Peter's run down an alley and he's on a dead-end alley just with his face in the corner, sobbing and weeping, howling. Why? Why is he beside himself with grief? because he has destroyed his identity. Promises shape identity and broken promises forfeit identity. It leaves a deep hole in our souls as we grapple with who am I? The pain of this can be severe beyond words. You keep reading this passage and see how Judas responds to his broken promises. We live in a culture that tells us not to make promises, but follow our feelings. And our personal experience tells us it's not safe to keep promises. 
And yet, without promises, we have no community and we have no identity. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that the modern life is more lonely and isolated than at any other time in human history? Despite all of our connections, despite all of the ways we have to travel and to communicate, we are experiencing the most lonely time to be a human. And I'm not just saying in the pandemic, the last decade or so. We live in a cycle of perpetual fear, fear of failure, of pain, of loneliness, and isolation. We cannot have identity or community without promises. What can we possibly learn from a story like this in Peter's life? Is the message going to be, try harder, guys, do it again, keep your promises? Do you remember what happens to Peter a couple weeks after this? this is, the Bible's crazy, you guys. I don't know if y'all are reading it at home or not, but this thing is crazy. Uh, this Peter, howling, weeping in an alley, Peter, in a couple of weeks, becomes one of the most influential leaders in the history of the world. In the world, you guys. He didn't just turn it around. He became one of the greatest leaders in human history. Did Peter, I bet what he did is in Jerusalem, he went to a bookstore and found a really great self-help book. He found good to great in God's eyes. Or, you know, he found the Christian version of the business practice book. Did Peter, maybe he prayed really hard. Maybe he did the prayer of Jabez for 40 days and God drummed up in him the willpower to really turn it around. <laughs> Let me remind you why Christianity is so revolutionary. The scriptures teach us, and we see it in the life of Peter, that failure and betrayal do not get the last word in the Christian life. I believe the scriptures teach us that promises shape our identity and our community. Well, promises do that. It's just not our promises that do that. Christians make and strive to keep promises because we are confident that Jesus will keep the promises that he has made to us. We don't muster up willpower. We cultivate long memories and deep faith to continually root ourselves in the one who keeps all of his promises. The revolutionary nature of Christian uh, thinking, of the Christian idea, is that your identity and your community are shaped on the promises of Jesus, not on your promises. And so I want to just real quickly consider three empowering promises of Jesus. If these are true, it changes everything. These are promises that if we keep them, if Jesus keeps them rather, we all will be empowered to make and keep promises too. The first promise that Jesus makes is that he promised to judge. You're like, Whoa, that's not where I thought we were going. The last sermon Jesus ever preached, his last public teaching was about the end of the world and his judgment. We talked about this several times. We preached about this several times. There all of those sermons are from this series. It's available in the app. You can go back and, and listen to it. Jesus has promised repeatedly that he will return and he will judge. All will be made right. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This has been the story, or this has been the promise of God's story since humanity began. 
This has been the consistent promises of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. God's will will be done. The earth will be restored. God will judge. Now, let me give you two examples of how Jesus' promise to judge empowers us in our own promise keeping. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. I'm gonna say it one more time slower. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. If Jesus keeps this promise, we know that no one who does wrong will get away with it. We know that those, listen, we know those who break promises will face the judgment of God. There are only two options for promise breakers. They will fall on their knees and receive the mercy of God, or they will stand proud and have to face the judgment of God. If Jesus is going to judge, it means you and I can let go of our need for revenge. We can lay down our desire to have somebody pay us back. We can lay down our need for someone to do anything in light of the promises they've broken to us. Second promise. Well, second example of how Jesus' promise to judge empowers us. Second Peter 3. We are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. If Jesus keeps this promise, our destiny is a world filled with the righteousness of God. Justice, all things will be well-ordered. All things, all people will be treated as they should. We will be free and at peace. We can abound with hope knowing whatever our present circumstances are, they are profoundly temporary. Are they painful, difficult? Absolutely. I don't want to minimize any of that. But we have to hold those realities in light of the promise that he has promised to return and give us a new earth, a new heavens, where his righteousness will fill it. So how freeing does it sound to know that Jesus has promised to judge, which means you can lay down your need for revenge, you can lay down the tight hold we have on changing our present circumstances. The promise that Jesus will judge gives us a new identity that empowers us to build community. Second, Jesus promised to die. Soon Jesus will cry out, my father, why have you forsaken me? To put that a little differently, why have you left me isolated and alone? Because that's what happens to promise breakers. Promise breakers find themselves isolated and alone. And in his death, Jesus bore the consequences of promise breaking. He felt the loneliness and isolation. He would feel literally the tears of Peter. Whatever's going on with Peter, that gets laid on Jesus. And by bearing the consequences for sin at the cross, by satisfying the wrath of God on the cross, Jesus fulfills his promise to forgive. The promise of his death is the promise of his forgiveness. We don't have to bear the consequences of our failures. In fact, the, the crucifixion turns the whole failure game on its head. The, 
the consequences of our failures in terms of we can, we can hold loosely the opinions and positions of other people. We have to own our failures and, and confront them. But do you see how the death of Christ actually empowers us to do that? The cross says you are far worse than you think you are. <laughs> What's that mean? You're so bad. Your sin is so serious and so significant that the sinless, spotless lamb of God had to die for you. The only blood precious enough to pay for your sin, to satisfy the wrath of God is the blood of God himself. The cross is a criticism. And then it, it just can't get any worse. Nobody can say something about you that the cross has not already said about you, which means when you fail, if the cross really has achieved forgiveness for you, you can do something radical when you fail. You can be honest about it. Because your, your identity is not secured by your productivity, but by the promises of Jesus, by the forgiveness of Jesus. Some of you believe in your mind that Jesus loves you and has forgiven to you, but it doesn't carry in your souls. It doesn't feel real to you. If you want it to feel real, you have to live like it's true. And one way to live like the forgiveness of Christ is true is to confess your sins one to another and experience the forgiveness of God in that way. Every time we confess a failure, every time we own a failure, take responsibility for a failure, we own a promise that we've broken, we repent of it, we bring it to the light, you are living your new identity. You're embodying the truth of your forgiveness, living like what we confess is actually true. And then this will give you great confidence that you are in fact the follower of Christ. The promise of Jesus to die and forgive our sins gives us a new identity that builds a new community. The third promise, he promised to rise. And I'll put this real simply. None of Jesus's promises matter if he stayed dead. He just became another Jewish teacher that was executed for saying something crazy. If you're wrestling with Christianity, or if you're watching at home and you've stumbled upon some church thing and you're like, I don't know what to make of all this Christianity thing, the question you need to ask is what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? And if, if your answer to that, and I would argue the only reasonable answer to that, is that he rose from the dead, then that changes the way we view all of his words and teachings. It's fine if you disagree with things Jesus said. Just remember, he rose from the dead, which means he has more authority than you. If he rose from the dead, you can decide, will I agree with myself or will I agree with him? If Jesus rose from the dead, that seems to me a good reason to believe he will keep all of his promises. He promised to rise and he rose. He's given me no reason to doubt his promises. We know that he is faithful. We know he is right. He is honest and he will do it. Jesus will keep us and carry us. This is the secret that Peter learned, and it changed everything for him. It was not a matter of willpower that made him keep promises. Peter learned that the identity and community of a Christian is based on the promises of Jesus. He learned we do not find who we are. We don't find freedom by abandoning responsibility and commitment. We find identity we find who we really are by resting in the promises of Jesus. We become a people who make bigger and stronger commitments because we have confidence that Christ will keep his promises to us. Every failure then 
is an opportunity to experience the promises of Christ. And every promise is an opportunity to experience the faithful, empowering presence of Christ who always keeps his promises. So we root ourselves in that confidence by calling our minds back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, blessed it, thanked God for it, broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. How do we respond to God's generous promises? Through lives of generosity, generous with forgiveness, generous with our promises, and even generous with our possessions. As we come to communion, we remember that God gave first. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.